And so I moved to Juneau and uh, was immediately became fast friends with a group of uh, mu- musical types. We had two banjos and a harmonica and an auto harp and a dobro and just this great selection of instruments and guitarist. But we really needed a fiddle player and we had two banjo players. So I indeed lost a coin flip with the other banjo player and I had to go out and buy the fiddle. (laughs) And there you go. And that was like 1975 and that's, I, I, I immediately, I'd already fallen in love with the instrument but I just didn't have, didn't have one. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh, and in this podcast, we get to know Michael Gray, a violinist with the Seattle-based hot jazz combo, Pearl Django. Michael also plays in a trio called Deuce Ambiance, with Gwen Franz on the viola and James Hinckley on the cello. Here now is our conversation that took place at the Wintergrass Music Festival in Bellevue, Washington. My name is Michael Gray, and uh, I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1952. And so I guess that makes me 62 at the present time, soon to be 63. And I've been playing the violin for, oh, a little, just right around 40 years. I would say this will be my 40th year, 2015. So I started when I was 23. And uh, prior to that, I had uh, played the banjo for, oh, about a year and a half, two years. And, and prior to that, I was a rock and roll drummer for, oh, probably three, four years in, throughout high school. Tell me a little bit about your the Polish family background. Uh, you know, my, my family background, uh, everybody was pretty much born in the same neighborhood. Uh, that my father met my mother. Uh, they lived maybe a mile apart. So they were in the same area of Little Poland in Philadelphia. It's called Bridesburg. And uh, they, my, my father came home from WW2 met my mom. I have an older sister. And there was a, a I would say that there's a mixed bag of uh, especially the Polish heritage thing because I think my parents were very proud of their heritage but at the same time they were excessively American. They would do everything they could to not appear different. And it was so they did speak Polish with my father's mother who came over from the old country and there was they would converse in Polish but around us we'd never learned any Polish so I had to pick that up by my by myself so which I did from some you know I'm not fluent in Polish at all I'm, I can order food and say hello and how are you and converse a little bit but nothing nothing approaching fluency yeah there's this idea that I come across in the arts often, and not just in arts, but also, in fact, in almost leadership things, uh, 
as dark as Hitler, okay, uh, and then in the same breath, Mandela. There's this idea of a period of, of uh, incarceration or being taken away from the world where someone finds their path in life. They sort of understand who they're going to be. And So tell us about going to Alaska. Well, I, you know, that's that. I, I, I can see where that's maybe a particularly apt uh, analogy. When I went to Alaska, I was pretty much just a kid and just traveling around, and I had no real passion other than adventure. And adventure is a pretty good passion to have, I think. that That's not a bad one. As as passions go, there's there's worse. <laughs> and uh, But when, when I got to Alaska, it was more or less, you could kind of do whatever you wanted to do. Uh, Alaska at that time period, pre-pipeline, you were, you're, it's the closest thing to a space colony on, in North America. This is what year? Uh, 1972. Okay. Yeah. And you were who you said you were. And you were also taking it your word until you screwed up. And then if you got a bad rap for something, it was, it was kind of hard to shake. But you could do that. It was a it's fairly forgiving community. But the, the point is, is that everything was wide open. So when I learned how to, when I picked up the banjo up there, it, wa- it wasn't very long before I actually got a gig at a pizza parlor place in Fairbanks. And, uh, you know, it was probably six months after doing that. And it was totally self-taught, and I played with a guitarist who I had just met. And sure, but tell me how you came to the banjo, because I thought that was pretty... Well, I, living in my uh, m- my cabin, I was on a mining claim. and Explain that. Uh, a mining claim at, back then, probably still is, you basically have to... Uh, do $100 worth of improvements a year, and you get claim to 20 acres of land that you're supposed to develop for mining. Well, I had no desire to do any mining (laughs) whatsoever, and I could do the $100 of proving work, but I built a cabin on it, and uh, it was a great, great experience. And, you know, you can kind of live for very very inexpensively, and you're pretty far away from. Oh yeah, I was like 40 miles out of out of the outside of Fairbanks on the Steese Highway, and then off of the Steese Highway three miles or so, and everybody who lived in that area, which was not many people, my closest neighbor was over a mile away, knew that there wasn't any gold out there. That was the the ideal in Alaska. There was to be a gold panner and make make a lot of money, and but I just wanted a place to place to live so this guy came to visit me and he had a banjo and he was a bit too he had to pack it in and it was in a hard shell case kind of a hard shell case but he brought it into the cabin and he didn't play it at all and I kind of wondered why he had brought it with him but he asked if he goes can I leave this here because I really don't want to carry it back out and I said sure you can (laughs) go ahead So anyway, winters are long there, and uh, I kind of taught myself how to play the banjo. There was a great, the still the best music instruction book that I think is out there is How to Play the Five-String Banjo, written by Pete Seeger, and it was in the case. So what a great, what a great book. And, you know, occasionally, uh, being out in the middle of nowhere, when the strings broke, 
I would tie them together again with a little pair of pliers that I had and tighten them up so that there was a so after a whole winter I had like strings with knots <laughs> metal knots up and down the uh, the fretboard which was uh, I got a pretty serious case of calluses from doing that but it was a great thing and I you know I kind of I just accompanied myself I would sing and just play the banjo and I had no idea what I was doing but music finds a way sometimes and um, that's kind of my introduction to string music later uh, I'd say in 1974 75 the pipeline kind of really hit the interior of Alaska, and there was lots of people searching for the big payoff, and that didn't really particularly appeal to me. So I moved to Juneau and uh, was immediately became fast friends with a group of uh, mu musical types. We had two banjos and a harmonica and an auto harp and a dobro and just this great selection of instruments and guitarist but we really needed a fiddle player and we had two banjo players so I indeed lost a coin flip with the other banjo player and I had to go out and buy the fiddle <laughs> and there you go and that was like 1975 and that's I, I, I immediately I'd already fallen in love with the instrument but I just didn't have didn't have one and that's that's it. It's it just kind of took over my creative life, I guess. And so we we talked about uh, a lot of ways in which the, the fiddle as a physical instrument, you know, what you need to know about it, how it works. And and this music you're playing, you primarily would call it gypsy music? I would call it, you know, that's a good question. What do you call music? <laughs> yeah. I'd just call it music. But uh, if you're going to have to put some kind of label on it, I would call it uh, gypsy jazz or hot club music. But what we, Pearl Django has mutated from when I first, when I was part of the original, pretty much the original grouping, um, we were an uh, homage band. We played Stefan and Django tunes and then the occasional original. And you know, our still our best-selling CD is mo it's got mostly Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli covers on it. And you know, we did our homework. We were very assiduous about the way we approached approached the music. And uh, you know, I like to I like to say scholarly. I'll, maybe that's a little too strong of a word, but we we were very serious about learning the stuff and learning it in the correct way. And it's it it worked for us for a while and then you know no matter how long you do something sooner or later your your inner urges kind of uh, start to come to the fore and like our last CD which is our 12th one is completely original except for one tune and the one tune we did we all really just the one unoriginal one is just one that we all really love so we decided to do that one on it and uh, so we've we've gone from this homage archival type of band to doing all original stuff in that kind of style, you know, with that instrumentation. But we have two guitars, accordion, violin, upright bass, 
and we're all composers. Everybody writes in the band. And that's really important, I think, because everybody gets something out of it. If you're, you know, you're, if you're invested in it and you're, you will, I think, inevitably, if you're playing with good players, everybody really cares about the, the music and the approach to it. But you care just that little bit more if you're writing and you want to see your stuff portrayed as you had envisioned it. So I think it's that's a, an important part about Pearl Django. And this, uh, we really haven't had that much turnover. We've had probably, I'm thinking, five or six guitarists. One violinist, that'd be me. Uh, maybe I'm just too lazy to move on. I don't know. Two upright bassists, but our current bassist has been with us for 17 years. And our accordion player, David Lang, is um, also our recording engineer. So... Uh, he's been with us from the beginning. So, so the violin, yes, specifically, what does that bring to this particular mixture of instruments, and how do you have to understand the character it brings to it? Well, it's kind of I like to view myself as the vocalist, <laughs> and in a uh, in a jazz band, you know, that you you would have a vocalist who will sing a verse and then everybody starts playing solos and quite frequently i am the person who plays the first statement of the melody not always but i do it probably more often than not and i get the chance to kind of shape the melody and i try to keep them kind of simple not necessarily but not a lot of flourishes so that there's some place to go if if you shoot the wad right at the beginning where do you go <laughs> so you have to build up the stuff so i try to tend to i tend to play a nice simple statement of the melody and then we usually have a selection of soloists and just about always there's a violin solo in the in the music and then we go through the progression so it's basically a theme and variations it's a it's a jazz band in that sense and play over the changes kind of jazz so swing era to bebop to it's not free jazz it's not uh we're playing over chord changes and we're using the associated scales and techniques to to do that so i think the violin is critical to this style of music i think all all of my favorite gypsy jazz bands or hot club bands have a great violinist in them and I listened. I, I would say I listened to not as much as I used to. I used I used to be a voracious listener to all things gypsy jazz, and now I'm tending towards. I, I'm really uh, listening more to string quartets now. I love uh, string music and um, writing some stuff for string quartet i recorded a an album last year of uh, a string trio violin viola and cello and that was really great i i really enjoyed it and so i like to think that the the pearl django is kind of my meat and potatoes and i have all these little side projects that i that i work on so you're talking about your um the fiddle, the violin yes of course interchangeable word as far as i'm concerned i agree with you wholeheartedly okay so uh, the violin is the uh, is the vocalist of the jazz group. In some ways, in yes. Some ways. Yeah. So does the vocalist get laryngitis? Does the vocalist have bad days? It just says, oh, by all means. There's some days where 
<laughs> they are there are some days where I just can't make two of the pencil. It's just horrendous. But the good thing is, this is the way I like to view. If you never can get outside of yourself and realize that if you do the same thing over and over and over again, that's all you're ever going to do is just get better at that one little phrase. Like for I like to think that classical players could really benefit from taking some improv and improv lessons. And But what I'm talking about here is the violin itself. Oh, okay. You open up the case, you take the violin Oh, out, sure. And sure. you think it's going to sound great, and it's just, it's just not the day it's going to sound great. Well, my it's humidity, whether it's yes, not yes. necessarily the player. What is the, what is the personality of this violin that you play? I have a, an Italian instrument, and I'm very partial to it, but it, it can be a beast every now and then. It is made in the last century. It's a from Cremona. It's a Cremonese violin. It's about 20-plus years old, and it just keeps getting better and better. It also can get overly throaty sometimes. It can have some mid-range, uh, especially it, it's, it can be tough to mic, in a live situation. So I, I've come up with my own little miking technique. I use a little clip-on microphone, put it behind the bridge, point it right at the bridge, and uh, run that into a little AER amp. And it seems to work pretty well for me. I don't, I don't ever play at really loud volumes anymore because I just don't like playing really loud music. It just hurts too much. But the violin itself, can be really, really, what's the word? Uh, I would say it can be just really flippant <laughs> sometimes. It has this, uh, most of the time, it's just great. I, sometimes I take it out and it's just, oh my goodness, what am I going to do today? But I find that one of the things that works for me, and maybe this doesn't work for other violinists, and but if it's a dog, I put, a, I put my mute on. And I play with the mute on for, oh, half an hour or so. And I play really softly and really loud. And, you know, almost always, by the time I take my mute off, it has, whatever the problems are, they have at least decompressed enough to be for me to be able to enjoy my instrument. So you'll do this before a performance if it's one of those days. You'll play with the mute on a little bit, try to get it up to speed, essentially before you do the show. Sometimes, yes. And you know, sometimes you don't have that luxury. Sometimes you're just walking in off, you just barely <laughs> make the gig for whatever reason, the plane's running late, or you're driving to a gig and it's, and you just gotta go. Do you talk to your violin? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> yes, I have a few names for it. Mostly, well, I have two that I play a lot. One has got some issues now, so it's really just gotten high-endy. But I used to call them the boy and the girl. <laughs> then the boy, of course, was the, you know, this is a little bit of typecasting and, and gender specificity, so I'm sorry if I offend anybody, but the boy was was much deeper and the girl was high and clear and unfortunately the girl has gotten gotten shrill 
which is especially the e-string so it needs a little it needs a little work i'm not sure what exactly to do with it but i'm playing it less and less finding uh, taming an e-string very difficult it can be it, i've gone to a little heavier e-string the forte and you would think it would be louder but in fact it uh, works in the opposite direction and it seems to tone down that at least on my violin uh -huh. yeah they uh, they're they are creatures of in, they're like humans. Once you think you've got one figured out, it will throw you for a loop. They, uh, they really are. And, you know, you, you form these relationships with these pieces of wood, but they're really, in a lot of ways, they, they're beautiful things in their own right. And I, my violin is just joy to hold. It really is. It's just to pick it up and hold it. I, I, I'm, I'm halfway there. And I think that's a good thing for especially young players to learn is, gosh, if you don't, if you don't want to pick your violin up and hold it, then you probably are you get another instrument or do, do something that just makes you want to take it out of the case and just hold it. Because, you know, if you hold it for a little while, I guarantee you you'll start playing it in five or ten minutes. So, yeah, so that my, my feeling there on uh, the violin is that they are – Creatures of infinite, uh, infinitely unreliable <laughs> behavior. <laughs> Most of the time, they're really swell, but mine occasionally is a little recalcitrant to speak. <laughs> Maybe it's because you're playing gypsy music on it. There's a part of the gypsy soul that can't be confined and predicted. Is that uh, being uh, that could be? That could be. This I think this this is a great all-around violin. I mean, I've had other, you know, mostly I think you can you can say this about a lot of players. If you see somebody else's violin, you go, oh, I, can I play your? And you pick it up and you go, how can anybody play on this? And I'm sure that people do the same thing with mine. They go, what is what what is he seeing this thing? You know, and or maybe not. Maybe they go, wow, that sounds really good. I I like that. But it they're so personal. And you, you, you can't, I mean, some people can make a $10 violin sound fabulous, and other people can, can't make a Strad sound like anything. So, infinite. Let's listen now to Michael play with Deuce Ambience, the tune titled Dragonfly. Thank you. 
we were talking about the violins. So the other day we were talking about bows, and I even mentioned a carbon bow at some point, and you started talking about, well, yeah, that's that's a good bow to have when you got to play out, outdoors. You know, there, there's a purpose for that. So talk about the, the, the wood bow you have mm-hmm. and, and the role it plays in this personality thing going on. I mean, because the bow and the fiddle have to agree with each yes, other. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And if they have personalities... So where'd you get your bow? And well, I have uh, I have three bows that I use uh, a lot. Two of them are made by a Northwest maker, which is probably, as you might know, I think the Pacific Northwest is might just be the bow capital of of the world right now. There's so many great makers, and I have uh, two bows by Ann Larson, who lives on Bashan. She's a great maker, and they're not. In my mind, they're not pristinely beautiful. They're more, they're very, they're, they're very attractive, but they work really well for me in the sense of I get, I get the biggest variety of tone with her wood bow of any bow that I've ever played, and and I'm talking, you know, I have tried some fairly expensive violin bows. This bow really works for me. What can I say? I have two of them. One is is one that I use on one violin just about exclusively. The other one is a uh, is my all-purpose uh, bow. Probably seventy-five percent of the time, I use it for everything. Mm-hmm. What I don't like doing with it is playing outside when it's cold and or wet, and um, you know, unfortunately, sometimes, especially living here in the Pacific Northwest in the summertime, what's supposed to be a beautiful 75-degree day turns into a 64-and-a-half-degree day with a lot of moisture in the air. And if you've ever tried to play a violin outside in the in, in a wet, wet environment, the hair doesn't cooperate sometimes. It doesn't really grab the string. So I have my carbon fiber bow, which I really like, and I play... I use it. It's my first spare. What's the it, brand? It's a Coda, Coda bow, Coda Classic. I don't even know if they make Coda Classics anymore, but it's. A, I bought it about fifteen years ago. I'm thinking, you know, it's a great. It's a great bow. It's it. It produces a slightly different, leaner sound than my wood bow, but it's really good. But what the thing I like the most about it is that when it's wet outside, and I'm playing outside when it's wet out. I can use some uh, cello or bass rosin, and I re- it makes those hairs just it gets them just enough, just to stick up just enough that I can get a little traction, and that's all that's all I need. But I don't like uh, ice skating all over my strings when I'm trying to play. It's hard. It's hard to do. So the uh, Kodobo is great for that because I don't. I guess it being a carbon fiber so maybe you know not as snooty as a wood bow but it's a great bow i use it a lot <laughs> and i think it, that's one of the things i use it for is uh it works well and i, I love bow uh, but i do adore my ann larson bow it's just it's uh it's been through the course let's just put it this way i've uh it's stood the test of time i've had it for 
oh, I think at least 20 years. And it has managed to live through my... I'm not easy on instruments. Let me just preface this by... uh, I can still remember when I played once. I was playing underneath the ceiling fan. Have you ever played under... You know, you get that Doppler effect kind of from uh, playing a violin under a fan. Anyway, I was playing, and I wasn't watching what I was doing, and I just kind of... And the fan was going around, and... I did this like up bow thing and I looked up. Anyway, the fan blades caught my bow and it got st- stuck in the fan blades and it went around and around and around and then shot out from the from from the fan and it landed on its tip and it didn't break. So I said that's that's my bow. <laughs> I got to have that one cuz if it if it can do that then it 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 can do it. So so I am, I'm, you know, they're tools. Besides being really wonderful, beautiful things, you use them. And I'm, mine's not a, I don't have, it's not perfect. By the time I'm done with a bow, it's, it's going to have some, it's going to have some personality. Let's just put it that way. It's, it's going to have some wear. So, uh, yeah, it's a Indiana Jones. <laughs> it's not the years, but the mileage. <laughs> exactly, yes. That's very good, very good. A fiddle that got away that you you wish you'd still had. You traded it in a moment of thinking or something happened or any of those stories? I have one. I traded a uh, Ernst Heinrich Ross, uh, mid-20s, nice instrument, really just, and just beautiful wood. You know, probably the single most beautiful wood violin that I've on a violin that I've had close to me for a while. And it was just a pleasure to hold, but it just was not, didn't sound right. And I think the thing that I wish I had done before trading it in on a violin that I have now, the girl, mm-hmm. <laughs> is giving it, uh, having somebody who who I trust, and I have a few people that, uh, my violin people that in Seattle, just having having them go through it, you know, maybe take the top off and see what if there was something that could be done because it's just it was such a beautiful instrument, but it just it its tone was strangled. So I wish that I had had the forethought and the wherewithal to just say, you know, let's I want to I want to hold on to this one instead of trading it in, I. I want to make sure that it gets a, a it gets a fair shot. But I think that word you used is a great word, wherewithal, because I've had a couple of violins that I just kick myself, and maybe I got talked into it by the fiddle dealer, you know, right. who yeah. held up the new the new lamp, the, the new you, lamp sure. for old, right? You know, I once had an old Hoff, and it was probably not the real Hoff, but it, the I, German kind of squarish, yeah, 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 it was a Hoff. And it had this kind of open, woody sound, which I tend to like in a fiddle. And it it just, you know, it could have had a bass bar that was carved right into the top. I mean, it could have been absolutely one of the knockoff, cheapest things going. But I did love that that darn thing. Uh-huh. And then later, uh, in fact, it was a Roth that we're talking about this, a, a fiddle dealer. That Roth, right at this time, was about, oh, uh, 
this would have been early 80s, was beginning to suddenly really market to the fiddle world. Yes. The Roth violins. Oh, yeah. yeah. Remember that? Yeah. And uh, a friend of mine was a fiddler, and he, he had a full-page uh, was a full page ad in Fretz magazine, I think one of the last Fretz, where he's holding a Roth. You know, this idea you could buy this German violin, you know. And so I wound up trading uh, that and a lot of cash and whatever For else. a Roth. Roth. And I probably couldn't have swung the deal without the fiddle getting in it. And, uh-huh. But, you still you know, have the Roth? No. It turned out not to be a fiddle. You know, I uh-huh. cared that much about it over time. It really wasn't for uh-huh. me. It just never meant anything to me. I played it for a while. But every one of these these uh, fiddles you get over time, even though you look back at them, they kept me playing. So the interest was renewed. Mm-hmm. It was a new challenge. It's not quite like dating, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'm pretty getting pretty settled on who I'm with now. But... Uh, you know, there is this uh, this thing. In fact, when you have a couple of violins, uh, sometimes I get funny about it. It's almost you feel you know, a little you know, a little infidelity going on here, playing well, one versus the well, other one. But that's, I think it's good to have ones that are special specialty beasts. I have the way I look at them. Though, like the girl is a. You could you could go into a crowded room, and if you had to play acoustically, you could cut the mustard with that thing. Mm-hmm. People would hear you, mm-hmm. and that's a that's a good skill to have because, or it's a good it's a good attribute for a violin to have. And maybe it's just the way I play it. Who knows? Maybe somebody else could make it sound warm and rich. But it's when I when I pick it up, it doesn't sound warm and rich. <laughs> Whereas my Italian sounds warm and rich and I don't I can play it excessively quiet or I can really lean into it and it always has it 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 has what I'm looking for but not always and I also have an, uh, I have three violins that I play and a viola and uh, the viola when I usually end up putting it back in the case because my hand hurts <laughs> I just my hand is not I've been playing the violin too long or something. I know I should be able to stretch it a little more, but it just, I'm good for about a half an hour on the viola, and then it's, but I do love it. It's a, it's a really cool sound. There's nothing else quite like a, a viola. It, it's, it, it's a mongrel, but it's it's a wonderful mongrel. So, I just interviewed a group called Fretless, a great group out of Canada. Well, three of them are Canadian. One of them's from Vermont originally, the cellist, but they're, uh, I think two or three of them were trained at the Berkeley School, so they have some real, real technical skill. But they're playing traditional music, but doing full arrangements. Young, young players, very good, skilled players. I like their stuff a lot. So uh, you know, it's quartet music, but they're playing Scotch Irish music, mm-hmm. and they're playing even French Canadian, and they're throwing some other things in there. Forked deer, do a good variation. Yeah. Forked uh-huh. deer. If you ever want to hear a quartet do forked deer, they do it. And so I watched them perform recently. And every other song, I mean, one song to the next song, the three fiddlers, essentially were three fiddlers and a cello player because the, the viola, they kept passing it around. I never saw this. And, and they basically said nobody wanted to be stuck being the viola player. <laughs> so they had this agreement that, you know, you've got to play it on this song and then I get the next one. And I imagine they have to adjust their fingering, but they did. Well, they do it, yeah. And they're young, and yeah. that helps, maybe, uh, you know, young Well, it's, it's just a, dip, you know, especially the bigger ones. You know, I have a, like a 16 and 3 quarters, which is not huge, but it's 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 big. It's a big enough change from the violin. 
it's two inches, two two plus inches longer. And it's just, you know, there's just something about it that hurts my hand. I don't know. And uh, I, I love the sound. And uh, But to get back to the, the violins, yes, I have three violins, one of which has got a bags pickup on the bridge, and that's my outdoor violin. And that one is really interesting because I never change the strings on it, ever. The only time I change a string on it is when the winding rips or it breaks. Otherwise... I want it to be as dead as absolutely possible because of the, in fact, I even mute the bridge a little bit. I use a little round rubber mute and I put it sideways on it and I just get the tone that I really like with my amplifier. So I'm pretty happy with that. But it's a, a definite electric violin sound. There's no, nobody would ever confuse it for anything else. But it works. It works for me and it works outdoors marvelously in the wind, in the whatever the elements are so that's i play that one and i play the the boy and the girl and um the rabid viola every now and then thanks for a half hour at the most (laughs) thanks yeah we'll do this again Uh, you're more than welcome my pleasure Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. So thanks again and keep listening.